0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for coming out for the inaugural uh, event of the Madison Program for the spring semester. Uh, we're going to uh, start off with a bang, I think. It's it's good to uh, be a part of Princeton's recognition and celebration of Black History Month. Uh, I am. Uh, Brad Wilson of the Madison program and I am going to introduce to you uh, someone very special to the Madison program who will then introduce uh, our speaker for this afternoon. Uh, We have with us today uh, Professor Carol Swain from Vanderbilt University, a professor of law and a professor of political science at Vanderbilt. And uh, Carol knows... Princeton University very well. She spent many years here uh, in in the politics department. Uh, Was a tenured professor here before moving on to Vanderbilt. Uh, And then uh, Carol came back last year as a visiting fellow in the James Madison program uh, and uh, spent the year with us and helped us last year organize our event for Black History Month. And uh, when Carol went back to Tennessee, Uh, she kindly volunteered to help us again this year and uh, had just had a wonderful idea of bringing in the gentleman we have with us today. I think uh, he's got uh, a message that probably resonates quite deeply with Carol herself, (laughs) given her own interesting trajectory in life, uh, where uh, I believe Carol uh, somehow managed to miss high school altogether, but wind up with a number of advanced degrees and uh, uh, have a splendid academic career. Uh, Most recently, she's the author of uh, The New White Nationalism for uh, Cambridge University Press, Uh, and uh, she she, uh, is the author of an award-winning book uh, titled Black Faces, Black Interests, The Representation of African Americans in Congress that was published with Harvard. Uh, She, uh, in the last few years, has founded uh, what I believe will become uh, a very important institute, the Veritas Institute, uh, which is uh, dedicated to promoting justice and reconciliation among people of different races, ethnicities, faith traditions, and nations a splendid uh, project, and uh, we wish her well with that. So uh, with that, Carol, please join me up here. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon, friends. It's a pleasure to be back here and to see uh, some familiar faces, and... uh, some uh, faces that are new. I do believe that this program is one of the most important programs that I have participated in in recent years because Mr. Woodson is one of those unsung heroes that not enough people know about. They don't know about the impact that he's having all over the U.S. and maybe even over in other parts of the world. I don't know enough to say all over the world, but I know that he has changed thousands of lives and uh, I've known about him for some time. As an African-American, uh, I've had an evolution. For a while, I was more of a liberal Democrat. But small, not never really, really out there as really liberal, but I was uh more mainstream Democrat, and I had always heard that he was one of those black conservatives, and if you're a black conservative, that's like a bad word. And I soon, as soon as I actually started speaking myself and doing research, I quickly found myself labeled as a black conservative. And it's pretty easy to get painted as a black conservative and then you tend to be dismissed by the people that should be listening to your message. This room should be filled with black people. This talk was advertised all over uh, uh, New Jersey and in Trenton and places where the communities are suffering, they're crying out, they have all of these pressing problems, yet uh, you don't see many black faces. Reverend Atkinson is an exception here. Maybe the only, and this young lady here, and the people that came with Mr. Woodson. But let me get to my notes. (laughs) I think Mr. Mr. Woodson has become a legend in our times, and that his prominence will grow as other civil rights leaders sort of fade from the horizon, and many of the policies that they have pushed are bankrupt. And uh, we know that, and even people that would like to believe otherwise, they have to look at what you see after so many years of activism that there's something wrong. Uh, Mr. Woodson's uh, background is not quite as impoverished as mine, I don't believe, but I don't want to get it. don't know if I should go there. Um, he was born and raised in the inner city, one of five children. I was one of twelve. Uh, he was a high school dropout and later earned a GED and so we had that in common. Um, I don't know which grade he dropped out at. He went on uh, in- into the military and and later earned a college degree at the University of Pennsylvania under the GI Bill. That was uh, the affirmative action of his day that many whites benefited from as well. His social activism dates back to the mid-1960s when he was first involved and community development programs designed to empower the impoverished. And there he learned that the movement had taken a wrong turn. It was too much focused on the needs of middle class minorities. The civil rights movement had lost its way, and so Mr. Woodson was in the forefront of trying to take the programs and initiatives back to the community. In 1981, he became the president and founder of the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, which was designed to create um, it was designed to address societal problems like violence, illegitimacy, substance abuse, and disease. Mr. Woodson uses a faith based approach and I believe that that's the only program that that's the only approach that actually works. I think it has always been the program with the most effective results. And so he has used a faith based uh approach even before that became popular with the Bush administration. He has received numerous awards, including the MacArthur Genius Award, and has written many books and articles, including the current book, The Triumphs, The Triumphs of Joseph, How Community Healers Are Reviving Our Streets and Neighborhoods. Um, he is also the focus of the article that uh, Brad Wilson just mentioned in today's Weekly Standard. This uh, article highlights the contributions to the transform his contributions to the transformations of lives, and his philosophy and the founding principles of his organization. And some of those uh, principles involve involving the people that are suffering themselves into the, the solutions of their problems, involving those people from the inner city that are most impoverished in coming up with solutions to address their problems. He also applies market-based approaches to the problems of the inner city and he has been in the forefront of bringing faith-based solutions uh, to the problems that affect the poor. And he has identified the leaders that we don't hear about. There are leaders in inner city communities that are making a difference. They're changing thousands of lives. You will not see them on McNeil, the, the Lair show, the News Hour. You will not see them on Fox News. You will not see them in places like that, but they are out there nonetheless making a difference. And so it's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Woodson.
2: Good evening. I uh, pride myself in saying that uh, we work at the bottom, because that's where the work is. That's why we're at the bottom. There is a uh, uh, prayer that I utter uh, each time I speak, and I commend to you, and that is, Lord, give me the strength to tell and pursue the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to me. That if we want to go someplace that we haven't been, it's important to do something that we haven't done as a country. Uh, to put it, uh, as some of my grassroots folks say, would say, if you keep doing what you do, you keep getting what you got. And so I really believe that self-criticism is the highest form of maturity. And so it's most important for us to be able to examine what we've done. And if we find it lacking and adequate, then we need to move in another direction. I certainly made that change in my life when I was uh, leading demonstrations in the civil rights movement. And uh, we were about four months demonstrating outside of a pharmaceutical company. And when they desegregated their workforce, they hired nine black Ph.D. chemists. When we approached these brothers and sisters to join the movement, they said we got these jobs because we were qualified. Uh, I also left a movement on the issue of force busing for integration. I believe then, as I do now, that we made a mistake in arguing in 1954 that separate is inherently unequal. I believe that separate is strategically unequal. And, and, and that has led us down uh, the wrong path. So I left the movement on that basis also. Mm-hmm. And so what I realized that many of those who suffered and sacrificed in the struggle for civil rights did not benefit from the change, that their problems were beyond race. In fact, there was an article in the Washington Post written by the then new reporter William Raspberry on October 29, 1963, and the title of it was Poor Negroes Are Not Benefiting from the Gains of the Civil Rights Movement. And then, uh, and so from that day, I began to redirect my lives, my life, to uh, working on behalf of low-income people of all races, recognizing that, that that as strategies must change as strategic conditions change, and so that's where I am today. And to begin with, to help me with with our perspective, if we, if I were to ask each person in this room. About how much credit card debt they had, car payments, mortgage payments, and then I just stopped at that point. I would go back and say those folks at Princeton are in rough shape, because in order for me to ascertain your net worth, I'd have to compare your liabilities to your assets. Or if I, in place another way, if I were to look through a window of a house and see only one room what I would see and describe would not be inaccurate. It would be incomplete. It does not describe what is going on the Race is like that. And race is also like if I were to tell you to give me the square yards of a field that is 100 feet by 100 feet, but it has a three-foot fence, and you felt or believed that you must factor in the height of the fence into your calculations, you would waste time and not come up with the correct answer. Race is like that also. And so it is most important if we are to, to, to move beyond race and look at strategic situations, we must be willing to look at history that way. But there are too many people who look at history with a, vision, a revisionist lens. They see what they want to see. They, they look at the black community only in terms of its deficits, looking back. And that's why the title of my paper is The Underground Railroad, because in Black History Month, too often all we get, and we're looking, you say black history, you immediately think about pathology. You think about slavery. You get people going out, slavery and plantations in the ghetto from there to welfare, as if that is our history. And we have so-called leaders who market the grievance of black America Because if you're problem-oriented, you can lecture about the problem, you can write books about the problem, you can consult about the problem, you can debate about the problem, because then you have no responsibility for solving the problem. And so they can make handsome uh, livings off of the grievance of black America without having any responsibility for solving the problems. And so in order for us to understand Uh, uh, how do we get in this situation, we must understand, looking back, that there was a physical underground railroad. The the first underground railroad was a historically physical uh, collaboration among people who were willing to risk their lives to free bondsmen. It involved hiding... Runaway slaves in barns and hay wagons, creating way stations to provide food and shelter along the way, and then finding places for them to go where they could resettle, get jobs, and establish their lives in freedom. That was a physical underground railroad. But the second underground railroad that we don't hear much about today was in the mental, moral, and spiritual framework that gave people the courage Uh, to free themselves from the psychological and emotional change that emboldened them. Harriet Tubman's own husband informed on her, and she had to, uh, because he was psychologically crippled. For slaves, uh, the only book that was available to them for which to read was the Bible. And therefore, they read with, with great interest the lessons that were taught by the Gospel and the Old Testament and they recognize, as we do today, that suffering uh, suffering does not ennoble a people. That sometimes people respond to oppression in different ways. In reading Victor Frankel's book, that it, the original book was from existentialism, uh, uh, and, uh, and Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, the revised book, uh, in there he talks about His experience in the death camps, that he lost his wife and three daughters. He was a psychiatrist. He lost them the years in the death camps. And he says that there are three classic responses to that experience. There were those who just gave up, that the highest level of deaths occurred around Passover because people had hoped that by Passover they would be liberated, and when that didn't occur, they just gave up and they died. And then there were those who became collaborators or capos, and they so identified with their Nazi oppressors, they even emulated their dress and their walk and their talk, and they were more oppressive to their own people than the Nazi guards. And then there were those like Viktor Frankl, who recognized that when you're in a situation where you cannot control your physical environment, what you can control is your response to that environment And so Viktor Frankl went inside of himself and began to survive. And for four years, he survived the death camps and came out of it. Uh, A man who then used his experience to author logotherapy and used his experience to liberate hundreds and thousands of people around the world with his experience. But what Viktor Frankl also said, that he did not surrender his soul and became embittered by that experience. There was an interesting story about how one commandant of the camp risked his life to smuggle food and medicines to the inmates, to, to, the, to the death camp uh, attendees. And as a consequence, when the camps were liberated and the allies were looking to round up all the commandants and the guards at the camps, three of Victor Frankl's friends hid this man in, in, the, in the forest so until they could safely negotiate his return, he was never arrested. he was placed in charge of distribution of resources in the camps. That is the ability to, to, to achieve grace in the face of oppression, and that is what Victor Franco realized. Just as in, uh, in, in slave times, there were three thousand slaves uh, blacks who owned slaves. And they fought on the side of the Confederacy. And yet, so that evil uh, has no bounds nor uh, nor, uh, territory. And so what we find here, by looking back at black uh, history, we have to ask ourselves, well, how did those bondsmen manage to survive in the face of this oppressive situation? The second underground railroad consists of an understanding from reading the Bible of of what God's grace is with people that he whose lives he touches. And there were three characters that I believe most influenced the attitude and belief systems of the slave. And one was Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as you know, was living comfortably as a slave but a cupbearer to the king of Syria. And yet he became troubled by not his own personal circumstance, but by Jerusalem, the state of his fellows in Jerusalem, and got a commission to rebuild the wall. The second popular character was Joseph. Joseph, as you know, was from a dysfunctional Hebrew family. He was one of 12, and he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he served in, he sold to the Ishmaelites, who were slave traders in Egypt, and he served in the house of Potiphar where he became the best servant in the house of Potiphar and he was placed in charge of of Potiphar's house he was the administrator and then he was a very handsome young man so Potiphar's wife lusted for him but Joseph refused to have sex with her because he had lateral integrity and horizontal integrity and Joseph though as a consequence she faked she said he tried to rape her after she sent all the servants out and he ran out of health and left his cloak, and he was in prison where he languished for years. But he became the best prisoner. And one day when Pharaoh uh, uh, was, had these dreams that none of his experts, his PhDs, his Princeton graduates around him couldn't answer, he, his servants remembered this uneducated Hebrew boy. And his 31-year-old uneducated Hebrew was brought before Pharaoh, and he said that, you know, 10, save up uh, 20% in good times, seven years of, of plenty, and so that you can make it through the seven years of famine, and appoint an overseer. And Pharaoh appointed Joseph as the overseer. There's one other character that I'd like to uh, to focus on, that is lesser known. And that is, in, the, in Second Kings, there's a 13-year-old Hebrew girl who was a slave in the house of Naaman. And there... She, Naaman, who was the chief general to the king, developed leprosy. And this 13-year-old girl advised her mistress to tell Naaman to go and present himself to Elisha in Israel and that he would be cured. And he followed her direction and went there to be cured. Now, the lesson in all of this, if Nehemiah, if Joseph, if this unnamed 13-year-old girl had defined themselves as a victim and sought only retaliation, then we would never know about them in history. But the slaves recognize that even though they are in a condition of slavery, that they must take steps themselves and never lose the grace that God has given them, and they must be faithful in their condition if they are to be liberated as Victor Frankl did. And so the second underground railroad, the reason that blacks were able to survive and thrive is because of the religious, the moral, the ethical standards around which they lived their lives. As a consequence, in 1940, between 1930 and 1940, the 10 years of the depression, the black marriage rate was higher than that of whites. Higher than that of whites. And so we maintained strong businesses that when we were denied access to hotels, we built 1,500 inns and hotels. When a 1,000 blacks were fired from the docks of Baltimore, Maryland uh, for striking in 19, uh, 1863, we did not mobilize a March on Washington demanding jobs, peace, and freedom. What we did is went to uh, the burial societies in our black churches, and a master capital for us to build our own railroad and we successfully operated a railroad from Baltimore to Maine for 18 years and thus reemploying all these people we had our own flight schools uh and and a number of institute office building every masonic organization had a large structure in our cities but now and so that if if just racial discrimination and and deprivation and injustice where the destroyers of black Americans then explained to me why up until 1962, 82% of all black households had a man and a woman raising children. 82%. And so what is it that allowed us to protect ourselves against it? It was our moral and spiritual uh, 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 content of our lives It was the the importance of the family that stayed together. And yet, in 1960, a major shift occurred. Excuse me. A major paradigm shift occurred. And that is, with the urban unrest, we assumed that what we should do is we need poverty programs, and we had the, the, the cultural, so-called cultural revolution that were devastating in destroying the Second Underground Railroad. Devastating. Because prior to 1960, government intervention in behalf of low-income people was really government to individuals. And all of these other institutions remained intact, but with the war and poverty, a major paradigm shift occurred where government money that was directed to assist people went into the, for services, they were translated into services for people, where 80% of the $13 trillion that has been spent over the past 40 years on programs to aid the poor went not to the poor, but those who served the poor, these professional providers ask not which programs or problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable this year. So we have, in two years uh, of urban renewal, all of the major commercial centers of Black life from Durham, North Carolina, the Hayti section or the Greenwood section of Tufts, Oklahoma, were decimated in two years of urban renewal. Urban renewal did more to decimate the black commercial centers in America than anything the Ku Klux Klan or the Knight Riders could have done. Because even during the Depression in the haytie section of Durham, North Carolina, we didn't have one of the 100 businesses go under, because blacks in Durham organized a boycott. And they have a, a, a chamber of commerce called the chain where they pull together the community to, to help uh, in, in those you know, struggling businesses. But two years of urban renewal, those communities were devastated and decimated. And also with welfare reform coming down the pike where mothers could receive support without having all you have to do is remain single, have babies. And, and, and the government will take care of you. The combination of all this perfect storm of policy initiatives came together with the consequence that today 70% of all black households are single uh, parent households, moms raising children. We also know that the black-on-black crime rate, more blacks are killed by other blacks in one year than killed in the nine years of the Vietnam War. And so, what we must do today is recognize that we have been injured by the helping hand. And what makes it so difficult to challenge this is that uh, we—it is—it was not willful. (laughs) I think uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his letters from prison that the most difficult phenomena to challenge is not malice, because malice you can challenge with violence. It is folly is when someone is doing something in the name of helping you that is destroying you in the process. And that is what we have been confronted with in America over these past few years. And then you add to it that, that, that the, the overlay of politics. So the assumption was that if we had enough money, $13 trillion, if only people of color were in political office, our problems would be solved. Blacks are running most of the institutions in our urban centers where blacks are failing. And, and so if only we had race policies and so we have civil rights laws changed. Now, please understand, I am not against blacks being in positions of power politically. The question is, what difference does it make if you change the race or sex of the driver if it's going in the wrong direction with four flat tires. And so it is important to know that it is not the sex or race of the ruler that determines winners and losers in this game of life. It is the rules of the game. And if blacks merely take over and continue to apply the same dysfunctional rules that existed when whites were in power, the consequence will be the same. And that's what we are facing today. We also recognize that that there are so-called civil rights leaders who are telling us that race is the most important issue facing uh, blacks today. But the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, certainly no conservative think tank, has done two uh, uh, surveys of blacks and asked the black community, rank and file, what are the issues most important to them? Race only showed up less than 2% on two different poles. It was health care, it was social security reform, jobs, defense, other issues. And yet we have a race grievance poverty industry leaders who continue to bombard us with the notion that our problems are grievance and that our problems are is racism. And so what I'm proposing to do is on the other, we must return to the values that our forebearers enable them to survive. And that's why we must apply old values to a new vision in order for us to move to the future. And so what is this new vision? I believe that people armed with experience will always prevail against people armed with an argument. What we did at the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise is that we went back and looked at those foundational principles that enabled our people to survive, and we brought them forward till today. So what we do is we go into low-income neighborhoods and we look for the real experts. And that is like a Geiger counter, we seek out people who are raising children in poverty but not of poverty. There are people who are raising children in crime-infested, drug-infested neighborhoods, children that are not dropping out of school, in jail, and on drugs. And we go in there and ask them, how did you do that? We bring them together in forums with microphones and writers sitting around, and we ask them to tell us what unique strategies, what values, what is it that you did that caused you to survive? And then there's a second type, and that is those in those communities that that did fall, that they became prostitutes, drug addicts, and, and, and predators. But God changed their heart and transformed them, not rehabilitated them, but made them all new people. And then they are powerful witnesses to other young people that change and transformation can occur regardless of your physical environment. And we bring these to the table, and they are the foundation of our new solutions. Let me give you some practical examples of what happens when we apply those principles with these folks. We know that crime and violence, that our problems are not just a absence or presence of drugs or guns. It is a moral and spiritual freefall that we are in, and therefore we must address the whole issue of faith as foundational to looking at a new order of intervention. Because if it were just economic and money and color, explain to me why the sons and daughters of prominent white actors and actresses, Mary Tyler Moore, Gloria Vanderbilt, uh, Paul Newman, John Belushi. I can go down in my book, I list about 30 of actors and actresses, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, all lost children to drug addiction or suicide. And so I tell folks, if secular success does not work for rich white folks, it ain't going to work for poor black folks. And so what we must do, therefore, is recognize that though if, if transformations of our hearts and communities can occur in the midst of the chaos of the inner city where there's crime and violence, then we ought to be able to find this rich ore of transformation and export it to the suburbs. And so for once, we will t- move something out there other than nasty rap music we'll be able to export to those communities remedies that are forged in the crucibles of low-income crime-infested neighborhoods. And so um, in conclusion, let me give you some example of what I mean. I learned that in my native Philadelphia, we we used to be the gang capital of America. We had 48 gang deaths a year. They used to list the Vietnam deaths along with the the, uh, street deaths right next to them. And the police would escalate. It didn't change. But a woman, an, uh, a Joseph, if you may, a social entrepreneur, she found out that the oldest of her six sons was a gang member. And she told him to bring your friends home. He brought 13 of his fellas home. And they sat up all night to talk about it. She said to them, I don't know anything about gangs, but I know something about families. And so what she did Well, she took the unprecedented step of moving all of her furniture out of this little row house. See, if you're rich, y'all call them townhouses. (laughs) But this is a row house, we call them in Philadelphia. She moved all the furniture out and moved 13 boys in with her six sons. She said, in order for us to, to live and survive in this small space, we have to cooperate. So they had dispute settlement. They all had to work. They had to be clean. And when the word went out in the community that there was sanctuary, young men showed up every day wanting peace in their lives. So they worked and paid off her mortgage in two years and purchased a house across the street, down the street, next door, over there. Next thing you know, they had seven homes where young men were living there in an orderly life. She said, after three years, there's peace in my neighborhood but not in the city. So she took the step of, of uh, calling a, a citywide gang summit all active gang members. While everybody thought she was crazy, she could not get any one of the black churches to open their doors. But the Quakers at 4th and Arch Street opened their historic center. And it was the first time in the history, I'm from Philadelphia, I was raised four blocks from Sister Fatah. It was the first time in the history of the city of Philadelphia that the Mama's Day Parade was canceled. They said, you get that many black folks together who are gang members, it's going to be chaos. It was not chaos. In 1974, they signed a peace pact, and the gang deaths went down from 48 to 2 in one year and remained there. Well, I was blessed to follow Sister Fatah around for three years and chronicle everything that she did. And I wrote a book called A Summons to Life because she taught me the Umoja Principles And then I used this at a prism to go around the country, and I found the Sister Fatahs in about 12 different cities. They were black, they were Hispanic, and I brought them to the Mayflower Hotel and sat them around a table with Dr. Peter Berger and his wife, Brigitte, and Dr. Robert B. Hill, sociologist uh, at Morgan. And these are three PhDs who were secure enough with themselves to sit and listen to untutored people for three days, and they asked probing questions, and I authored a second book called Youth Crime and Urban Policy, A View from the Inner City, that was uh, reviewed by Vanderbilt Law Review. And the reason that they liked it, because I did very little editing. I let the kids speak for themselves. Well, armed with that, we now knew what these principles were that would summon young people to peace, and it is the foundation of my organization, the National Center. And I had been training some grassroots leaders in Washington, D.C., about 10 years ago on these gang intervention approaches. And, and I said, your influence with the prison, you're all over, it's dispersed, but you've got to bring it and concentrate it in one neighborhood. And they said, well, where should we go? And then a 12-year-old boy, Daryl Hall, was killed, the youngest in the country. And so it was front page news and on the networks. And I said, God has made that decision for you. So because they were trusted, these men who were ex-offenders themselves brought the young men, 16 of them, to my office downtown in separate vans. And I tell, we searched them. I tell folks, we're spirit-filled, but we ain't crazy. And uh, we sat them down at the table, and they said, no one has ever asked us to be peaceful. And to make a long story short, we, we negotiated, and afterwards, it became a job training seminars, and what happened was the Housing Authority, once we had a press conference, showed up. And the same young men who used to terrorize their communities were going back, removing graffiti, uh, planting the lawns in a six-month program. Well, in nine years, we haven't had a single gang-related murder in an area that has 65 murders in a five-square block area in two years. And so we have taken this experience and exported it to different cities, And we are now in about five cities in the most dangerous schools. And within three weeks of our Josephs being in the halls of those schools, we have made major transformations of those schools. We only go to the most dangerous schools. Why? Because the kids respect them. They are not counselors. They are not security. They are living witnesses of God's grace. And kids want to see a sermon. They don't want to hear any sermon. They want to be a witness that transformation can occur and will occur. Let me just conclude by saying to you that if we are to rebuild our society, it must come from people who rediscover the moral and spiritual underpinnings of it. It won't be done through political debate or having conferences. And nor can we look necessarily at the political left or the political right. Bill Bennett said it right, that when liberals look at poor folks, they see a sea of victims, and many conservatives see a sea of aliens. That there's an old African proverb that when bull elephants fight, the grass always loses. (laughs) That we really need a strategy that goes beyond these political divides. And if we are to really have influence in changing America... America has to be remoralized. But it's not going to be remoralized by preaching it to people. People are going to have to see evidence of what a remoralized person is and therefore what a remoralized community is. And it's going to come not from the top down but from the bottom up. The Berlin Wall did not come because of some academic proclamation. It came because common people received faxes and got excited about freedom and the truth. And as a consequence, they were able to transform and bring down the evil empire. Let me just conclude by reading to you something that a friend wrote. First of all, he says, Mediocrity never arouses intense hatred. And that if the vision is clear and the principles exact, people will always know where to find you like a lighthouse that remains constantly fixed in one place with its light shining. The fog of prejudice, self-doubt, greed, and enmity may keep them from seeing you, but if you remain as a moral and spiritual lighthouse, those who are lost will find you. America must return to this purpose. Thank you. When you say something is inherently unequal, you're saying that anything is all black is all bad. That's how, in other words, that it's inherently bad. And that's why one time I was debating uh, Julius Chambers, who was a Harvard graduate, lawyer. Uh, We were debating the whole issue of integration uh, uh, versus educational excellence before the New York Bar Association. And so about midway through this debate, I asked Julius, I said, Julius, if you had two circumstances. One, a school that is all black where there's the presence of educational excellence, and school B where there was diminished excellence but it was integrated, where should we send our children? He said to B. I said, Then this debate is over. If you fundamentally believe that, then we have nothing to debate. By contrast, I've always believed like Marva Collins and East Side Academy. Uh, a public school teacher uh, left and s- formed the Eastside Academy in a rundown low income neighborhood where there was a presence of excellence. And she was able to teach kids that the public schools had given up on. And wealthy white families were bringing their children into this low income black neighborhood to attend the Eastside Academy because there was a presence of excellence. So I really think if you uh, give people the resources to develop. Uh, Excellence—that is what should determine where people go. Not if you—and I think it's—it's—it's—it's the underside of racism. It's racist to assume that anything is all black. It is all bad.
3: Yes. Um,
2: Now, the goal isn't to proselytize. When, when we say faith, and I'm really disappointed in this administration's faith-based initiative, for reasons that it, it's being used to talk about getting government money, that's not the point. In other words, a, a faith experience is somebody, in other words, drug, the, the traditional approach to drug and alcohol is to say no. It's a rational approach uh, Thirty-five million dollars was spent on a seven-year ad campaign to educate people about the horrors of drug addiction. That's a rational approach, right? When, in fact, if if a rational approaches work, explain to me why people with who are chemists, who are pharmacologists, who have, who are M.D.s are drug addicts. This isn't a lack of knowledge, is it? And so, therefore, it's an irrational response. And I believe faith in God is an irrational re- uh, answer. I don't know why it works, but it works. <laughs> and so, therefore, the groups that, that, that I have seen around the country who were predators, who are now ambassadors of peace, What I did was that for two years I went around the country and asked about 500 grassroots leaders over two years, what is it that you were a prostitute four years ago and now you have your children back, you're in school, you restored your life, you were a a, a drug addict, you were a a, a stick-up man, and now your lives have changed. What changed you? All of them said faith in God transformed me when prison couldn't do it when psychiatrists couldn't reach me, my faith in God changed my life. And so therefore, as someone who is a chronicler of grassroots initiatives, I had to begin to ask myself, what is it? And try to, and I'm still trying to answer that question for myself. But all I know is that the people whose lives have been transformed, they can't explain it either. But they know that when God entered their life, it was changed. They walked through a door. And every one of them, they don't need 12-step programs. Every one of them can tell you the date that they changed. That they didn't need the drugs anymore. They didn't need the heroin. And so uh, I hope that that's that's as complete answer as I can give you. I'm like that blind man in, in the book of Matthew. When they asked him... If Jesus is the Messiah, and he looked at these wealthy men with these fancy robes, and he says, oh, what a wonderful thing that you rich, well-educated, powerful men would ask me, a beggar, is he the Messiah? All I know is I was blind and now I see. (laughs) And I'm that way too. I can't explain it, but I've seen thousands of people who were blind to responsibility, to family life. And all of a sudden, they had an experience with God, and their lives have been changed. So I have to be uh, respectful of that and support it. Yes. Uh, so, what role do you think the
3: federal government and policy should take in solving these problems? Do you think the ideal, most successful solutions will come when the
2: government takes a very hands-off? It's See, I wish the government were, in fact, to take a hands-off approach so they don't. I'll give you an example. Back in 1990, I got a call, or 90, what was it, Heather, 93? 95. I got a call from Teen Challenge, a a noble organization that has 150 chapters over, very successful. The state of Texas and other states wanted to regulate them out of existence, even though none of these faith-based groups received any money from the government. And what the government was saying is that you must have professional drug counselors, people with degrees, if you call yourself a drug treatment program. So they changed their name. The governments came in and said, you are doing it better than anyone that I've ever seen, but you're doing it the wrong way. (laughs) Serious. That's what the evaluator said. (laughs) And so the government tries to regulate the amount of existence. In fact, started to seize their files and, and bring all the people in. And so what happened is when they called on the National Center, what we did was we got the American National Institute of Justice to file an injunction. Uh, I called a friend, Ed Bradley, I was in college with, uh, and asked him um, if he would just call there from 60 Minutes, even though I know you're not going to do a show, but just call. <laughs> And Bill Raspberry wrote a column uh, about it. It backed them off, but we were able to then organize a demonstration on the Alamo with 300 saved drug addicts. And then I was sitting with Governor Bush two weeks later, and he said he was unaware of the regulatory barriers. And so within six months, he signed a law uh, exempting faith-based groups from state regulations. So the biggest barrier that government places is regulating and, and denying, and they're hostile to faith-based organizations. No one is asking them to embrace them. But at, right now, government is actually hostile to faith-based organizations. Uh, that's just one uh, example where, where government is hostile. So right now, the best thing that government can do is, you talked about my having a GI Bill of Rights. Some of these groups need money. But how it gets to them is important. And that is, I do not believe government ought to be writing checks to faith-based organizations. What they should do is pass, uh, make tax credits so that individuals can assign some of their tax liability to these groups. The second, if uh, somebody is going to go into a hospital and the government is going to pay, why not send that money as a voucher to the faith-based groups if the group has demonstrated it can uh, better serve the group uh, interests of people so it's not a matter of being for or against government is what is the proper role of government the the government role ought to be indirect but never direct okay yes
3: Absolutely. Access rate they said runs each uh sixty-five to ninety ridiculous performance, you know, in comparison. And I just wish that somebody would do some serious studies of that of some organization
2: that it indeed they have this performance. What can it scientifically establish? Well that's
3: what up, ask how they are. I mean, people to these people are and
2: Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and, and we are, uh, Heather, over here. Is uh, on the board, National Board of Teen Challenge, and that's precisely what we're doing with our groups: is trying to get uh, uh, some studies done. But I was testifying before the Senate Committee with three psychiatrists, and we talked about this. And there are some studies done that show that they do have about a 60 to 70 percent success rate compared to secular programs. And I and I offered, the, I said to the psychiatrist. And uh, sometimes antidotes adults are important. And I said to them that some years ago, my 13-year-old daughter and my 16-year-old son, and my wife and I, spent a week at uh, T- uh, Victory Temple, a similar program, the Teen Challenge in San Antonio, Texas, run by Pastor Freddie Garcia and his wife. And uh, midway through my trip, I was there to volunteer for a week, my family. And I said to his wife, Nifa Sebab, uh, she turns to these two women and says, I want you to take the van and take Bob's daughter, and my three granddaughters, out to dinner, take them through the amusement park, and have them back by 10 tonight. As they were walking out the door, she said, Bob, relax, they're ex heroin addicts and prostitutes. The kids will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to these psychiatrists, How many of you would take the car, your car keys, and turn your daughters over to somebody that you announce is cured. Well, I have confidence that Pastor Freddie said they're cured, that they're cured, because he's an ex-junkie, and you can't hustle him. Yes? I've actually been involved with a team challenge in Nashville, and what I know from the scientific perspective is that there's maybe a
1: self-selection problem in the sense that people that go into Team Challenge, they have to want to be there. Mm -hmm. And I've had relatives that uh, were in jail, Mm -hmm. and I've offered to pay the $500 for them to get in. And I had one tell me, no, it's too much like jail. So the people that actually enter the program are people that are motivated. And so, of course, they would have a high success rate. And that's how the scientific studies dismiss it, because there's some self-selection.
2: Well, what my answer to that is, first of all, we, we are in 39 states. We have 2,000 groups that we support in 39 states. And I have had some of our people remanded there by the courts against their will. And the judge says, you go there or you go to prison. And so some of them come in reluctant. But once they get there, quite a few of them get hooked and then they, they stay transformed but I offer this to this to the secular, uh, what I hope would be a test, and that is, we need to set up uh, some standard to say if we were to take someone into a drug rehab program, and they're in there for a year, and we do urine tests, how many of people are still off drugs? Let's take go to five cities, randomly select a hundred people, or fifty people each. Let the secularists take theirs, the therapeutic community. And let Teen Challenge take 50. And then you talk with them and see how many you can get in your program. And at the end of the year, let's see how many are drug-free. And that, to me, would settle it. Teen Challenge and groups like that are more than willing to engage in such a contest. Try to get the secularists to do that. They won't. But uh, But our problem a pervasive problem from both the left and the right that underlies this very issue is fundamental elitism. With our college degree comes a healthy dose of intellectual imperialism. We are... Now, we don't have this problem in our marketplace. We don't care whether Bill Gates has a degree in computer science, right? (laughs) Only in our social marketplace is certification the same as qualification? And I'm not against certification, but I want there to be some correlation between certification and qualification. If you're going to operate on my brain, I want to see your degrees. But not so if you're going to approach me about changing my drug habit. That's a different different issue. But in our marketplace, that's why the word enterprise is in our name. We think and believe that the principles that operate in our market economy ought to operate in our social economy. We ought to demand outcomes for what we invest. I don't care what you do, you should be, when it comes to human uh, transformation, we should be, require some outcomes. But, uh, and, but, but, uh, but this whole licensing is supported by people on the left or right of center, not necessarily because it's, more, it's proven to be more effective, It's because it protects the industry. And it protects the industry. And I I love to use this example. In our market economy, the people who come, who who are A students, come back to the princes of this world and teach. The C students come back and endow. (laughs) Because about... 3% of the entrepreneurs create 80% of the jobs in the economy. And they tend to be C students. Because I know some venture capitalists who will not invest in any entrepreneur that has not failed at least once. See, well-educated people, they come to a company, they want to know what the 501K plan is. An entrepreneur wants to know what the deal is. And so, but but in our market economy, we appreciate it and extol it. Social economy, we frown on it. If somebody speaks and they dangle a participle, a split an infinitive, or break a verb, we assume that they're unwise. Therefore, we can dismiss anything that they say. Not so in the market economy. As one of my favorite uh, people, uh, A.D. Gaston, who was Alabama's first black millionaire. He was a sixth grade education. He a millionaire many times over. A.D. Gaston said, it's better to say, I is rich than I am poor. <laughs> that a lot of people who don't say ain't, ain't eaten. And so all we're trying to do at the National Center is to convert some of this wisdom so common sense can be elevated to commonplace again and that people will get paid. There's no reason why somebody, a group that is successfully treating a drug addict, should not get a third-party insurance payment. That doesn't involve government, state, then why? Why can't, if if my son is successfully treated by Teen Challenge and i got Blue Cross and Blue Shield, why cannot Blue Cross and Blue Shield reimburse Teen Challenge? These are issues this administration ought to be discussing with the insurance industry. Instead, they're chasing around talking about giving grants to groups. These are the the progressive policy initiatives we need to be discussing. But but you know, everything is being politicized, unfortunately. Yes, sir. Are you optimistic? I am very optimistic. Because you know why? Because in our world of low income, crime ridden neighborhoods, I'm seeing some dramatic transformations. Occur where schools that, where attendance rates are now up 93% in a school that was, uh, had five gangs in there. You go in the hall and, 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 and learning has begun to soar. And so I'm seeing the immediate effect of taking these transformed Josephs and, and, and men and women and putting them in there with children who inspire them to learn And to put down the gun and put down the drugs. I am so on fire about it. My frustration is that we don't have the money to take what I know works in microcosm and expand it to the entire nation. Yes, sir. used to volunteer there.
3: What you see the people there the the are
2: That's right. Okay, that's right. And cynicism. (laughs)
3: <laughs> my parents moved me out by that time. I'm a black black kid. <laughs> okay, Did my parents moved me out of West Coast Mm-hmm. Okay, so that we because they
2: were created, some of the world That's right. Okay. okay. Um the same kind of thing that you put up the the, the the same kind of
3: resistance. It's a time that was 40 years ago. Three years ago. Still. Okay. today okay. Chaka. Except for the two voids. hmm
2: No, you're absolutely right, and I think that the priorities that grassroots folks have, I, when I'm in, I, and I speak at Osborne Prison, I do a lot of speaking in prisons, and in fact, in 1983, you remember that they had these wolf pack attacks where groups of young kids began to attack shoppers on buses and all, and it wasn't organized gang. I went to Umoja at that time, and I said, Sister Fatah, what can your moja do about this? It's an outbreak. And this is out of the box. She called Fat Rob Allen, the four heads of gangs that used to operate, and they said, well, the fellas in the House of Corrections in the local prison either know who's doing it or can influence who's doing it. So what we did, again, this is t- going outside the box. We went to the inmate leadership inside and said, we got to address this problem. They gave us the name of 150 kids from their neighborhoods and say either they're doing it or they can influence who's doing it. Bring them to us. So we signed up 135 of them on a crime prevention task force. <laughs> and uh, Gordy, uh, um, not, not Gordy, uh, uh, oh. Sonny Gamble, music uh, tycoon, gave us the money to rent school buses on a Saturday. And we gathered up about 200 kids and bused them up to the house of correction. We had a meal there. The inmates came in one side. Sisters spoke. The imam from the mosque spoke. To, and these inmates sat down with these kids. The wolf pack attack stopped overnight, never to reoccur again. Everybody gave them a lot of awards, but no Rewards. No money. The University of Penn School of Criminology got another $3 million to study gangs. <laughs> Civil rights groups got more money to deal with gangs, but not Sister Fatah. And so what you're saying is true. Yes, ma'am.
1: we're not the biggest city. And uh, I believe that because there's an anointed black leadership and they're, you know, and the major black academics, I think they're not, I mean, they shut out people like uh, Robert Woodson. I mean, if, if people, if the professors at the major universities that had influence would tell their students, you know, there's some interesting ideas out there, this is part of your education, you should know who Booker T. Washington is. You should know what some of the cool some of. You should read Thomas Sowell. Then I believe you would have young people's minds clicking at institutions like this. And maybe when they graduate, <laughs> they would go out and make a difference in the world. They're not getting that. And so not only are they not helping, they're standing in the way and impeding progress. How do, how do you turn it around? The white people that are not these people and put them exactly. in power to stand up and do something, speak. It's not. I am just so frustrated when I see how these people are enabled to do nothing and
3: the communities <laughs> are suffering, they're being enabled there's a codependency relationship with white elite. Yes, sir. Well do you think that do you think
2: it is directly that the white value can be afraid? I don't think they're afraid, they they find it easier to pay ransom. Right. So they, they just pay they just write a check. And they know they're not going to do anything serious, and so that, but and so they can say they've already paid their black tax, so they will write their little check to these little hustlers, and then they can go home. Even though, uh, you know, I asked. In fact, I'm going to do a seminar on the 15th, right, Heather, before some corporate leaders, and I asked them this question: Why do you pay expensive government, uh, you pay expensive lobbyists to get government off your back, and then pay race hustlers to get government on your back? That's schizophrenic. But you're right. If they were to stop and withdraw their legitimacy, then they would go away. Any leadership, when you see the, quote, leader prospering while those that they are supposed to represent continues to deteriorate, you know, that's a corrupt leadership.
1: and ask them their opinion, and so they control who is considered a black leader. And uh, the people that you, the Josephs in the community that are making a difference, that are showing that black people are not uh, the people that were betrayed by (laughs) by Marinagan when he said that they were engaged in cannibalism, and that he slurred his own people and slandered them, that came from black people that said all of those terrible things were happening in New Orleans that weren't happening. And so... uh, it's they don't fight black people. We don't
2: control the media and the microphones and who gets annoyed as we do. No, you're absolutely right. I find it interesting in terms of priority, Hey, buster uh, When uh, about five or six years ago, 40 tired little white men came in a rickety school bus from Alabama to demonstrate as Klansmen on the, on the, uh, on the mall. Man, about 3,000 middle-class angry folks we were beating up the police to get to him. So they asked some brother in Ward 8, that's the high crime area. They went out there. They asked this old brother, What do you think about the Klan coming to Washington? He said, Well, bring them down here if they can get rid of these drug addicts. <laughs> 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 and he was serious about that because his priority wasn't the Klan, because they ain't the people shooting at his kids is these drug dealers. But you see, he would be called a sellout by these so-called leaders and all that kind of stuff. But again, nobody ever presses, them. that's why you never see them with briefcases, because you don't have to have any solutions. <laughs> you ever see him with a briefcase? <laughs> have you? No. Come on, it's fess up. You ever seen Jesse with a briefcase? <laughs> You ever seen Alice Sharpton with a briefcase? That's the tip off. I'm telling you, you got to look at these little things.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Only people with remedies got to <laughs> carry briefcases. <laughs> you know? That's a generalization you can take to the bank. <laughs> yes, sir. <clears throat> Yeah, I think, any, this, uh, I think anything that empowers parents to make choices is good. Uh, this whole issue was debated back in 1943 on the GI Bill of Rights, you remember. Uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Hutchins, who headed the School of Education at the University of Chicago, argued with the educators that if you give returning GIs the voucher, they will turn... Higher education into an economic hobo jungle. That was the name for homeless folk back then. But Congress, by one vote, voted to give the money to the GIs, and they in turn made their choice. And as a consequence, in 40 some years, we have educated 500,000 rabbis, priests, Baptist preachers with the GI Bill. And no one's talking about that because the money went to the individuals and not to the institutions. And there were some fly-by-night institutions, but the marketplace tends to take care of that. And so I believe strongly that you need to give choice, particularly low-income parents. It's fascinating that the principal opponents of vouchers have a choice. Eighty percent of public school teachers with school-age children do not send them to the systems where they teach. By contrast, if you work for Ford, you cannot park a General Motors car on the parking lot because it would be morally inconsistent for you telling everybody to drive a Ford and you driving a GM product. But we accept moral inconsistencies in our social marketplace that wouldn't be thought of in our commercial marketplace. Go around to, to any of these car, a car auto products and see if you see any foreign cars on the parking lot. Or if you see any non-Ford product, you won't see it. And we just accept it. Jesse, Elmer, Holmes, Norton, all of them sent their kids to Exeter Academy or some fancy schmancy uh, Sidwell friends and whatnot while they're denying a chance for low-income people to go. If you don't suffer the consequence of your decision, then that's morally inconsistent. Okay? Anything else? If not... Yes, sir. Yes. Okay.
0: Thank you. Before before you head out to the reception, let me just uh, make a couple of announcements about upcoming events uh, that the Madison Program is sponsoring. uh, On uh, this uh, this next Monday at 4.30 uh, in this room, we have Bill Saunders of uh, Family Research Council, Center for Human Life and Bioethics, speaking on the Doha Declaration, The World Affirms the Natural Family and Marriage, And then uh, the following Thursday, again here at 4.30, we've got uh, Michael Stokes Paulson, a law professor at the University of Minnesota, speaking on uh, an interesting and and timely topic, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Commander-in-Chief Power, Lessons from the Lincoln Administration for the War on Terror, and then finally, let me just mention that towards the end of the month, uh, on February 22nd and 23rd, we have our uh, first spring conference, uh, the Renaissance of Jewish Philosophy in America, that we are co-sponsoring with the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. It will be here on campus in Wig Hall, uh, and uh, uh, the idea is to bring in... Uh, Ten of our country's uh, leading Jewish philosophers and theologians and have them engage in a discussion of how being American has affected their philosophizing and and theologizing uh, and uh, and vice versa so I think that will be a very interesting conference and I hope you will attend thank you and please join uh, Mr. Woodson and us up at the uh, reception thank you